This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafuma. Mark Thompson. Get woke. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Ladies and gentlemen, glad to have you all join us as we are really the whole world watching uh, very closely. Can't help but see it. It's all over uh, all of the uh, all of the mainstream media. You can't miss it. The uh, coverage of uh, of Queen Elizabeth's uh, period of mourning. We many of us have been. Responded to in, responding to it in a, in a myriad of ways um, because we know the history of the British Empire uh, and what it has done, how it has uh, subjugated African people, colonized, enslaved, all of the above. Um, and there have been many, many reactions. I wanted to talk to a few colleagues and comrades today about um, where they are uh, in this period. And I think this is going to be a very interesting and enlightening discussion. Uh, the romanticism, the romanticization of what is going on in Britain really should not overshadow the crimes that have been committed. So we want to begin um, First of all, with someone um, who's no stranger, she's the founder of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap, the author of several books, including her most recent, which we all have enjoyed, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. She wrote a piece in Religion News Service recently after Elizabeth, the spiritual implications of imperial succession. Lisa Sharon Harper joins us now and make it plain. Lisa Sharon Harper, God bless you. Welcome. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much. It's really a privilege to be here and a joy to be back in conversation. And, and it's always a joy and enlightening to, to hear from you. In your piece, you you talk about um, your your reckoning, so to speak, with what is going on uh, in Britain and and the Queen's death. Oh, walk us walk us through that. So when I first heard the news with everyone else, I was watching um, watching the news in the morning. I turned it on and immediately. There was a sense of urgency that that the Queen's health is not well. And you saw people in the royal family rushing to the Queen's side that throughout that morning. And I just had a real sense, this is it. Now, I am a connoisseur of the crown. <laughs> I love that show. And I love it because it really does give you a good sense of, um, of what the heart of colonization is all about. And you be begin to realize because the crown focuses on that royal family that they too actually are, are um, bound by the powers of colonization. They can't do the things that they would want to do. So I've loved watching it. And so I cried 
when she died. But then I sat, I sat in the truth of all that has happened in the course of her life. And as the head of the church of England, and as the keeper of the constitution, her role as the monarch, um, she could have used her voice and she did not. She did it a couple of times. If, if what the crown says is true and, and others um, who have said she has actually used her voice um, a couple of times and usually has gotten reamed for it in the, in the repeat press. But that said, she didn't use it all of the time. And often she actually went along with the policies that we now know um, just absolutely ravished parts of the world, like the Mau Mau in Kenya. Um, 1.5 million tortured and placed in concentration camps, let alone the 90,000 that were killed in the attempted uprising against the crown. And just in the years, in the months after she took the crown in 1952, uh, we see the impact of the crown um, in South Africa and the reality that it is the British crown and her ancestors who laid the groundwork for the um, intermarriages, the banning of intermarriage, interracial marriage, and also um, the, the Racial Land um, uh, Act, the group, the group Areas Act, which was really the, the legal foundations for apartheid. Uh, we see uh, the snatching of children, the stealing of children that happened all the way through the 1980s, and some would actually say the 1990s in Canada and Australia. And we know that they settled out of court uh, for many of these things or never have actually acknowledged in some other cases. Plus the whole reparations case that has been refused to be acknowledged in Jamaica and in other Caribbean states and nations where brutal um, enslavement and subjugation took place for centuries. So when I sat in that, I really had to ask, why did I cry? I mean, my own ancestors were enslaved on Barbados, the very first slave colony of the British. Um, my own ancestors, and you read this in Fortune, were indentured and enslaved in Virginia and Maryland. So why would I cry? And what I found was it's the power of story. It's the power of story. And England's stories, the UK's stories, Britain's stories, whichever, however you want to put it, are the most powerful in the world. We're powerful than their military because they've shaped our understanding of who they are. Their stories have, have transformed our understanding of the diamonds in the crown from being blood guilt and being evidence of subjugation of, of the image of God on earth to being a sign, a sign and symbol of election, of ordination to rule. And so with that, I said, you know, I got to write this piece. I was also asked by RNS to write after they saw me tweet. And um, in the course of it, I can only think of one thing, one thing that would actually, that could make things even move in a direction of right. And it is that the symbols themselves, Charles, King Charles III, as he takes the crown, William, as he prepares, and George, little George, as they prepare him to take the crown, for them to revolt against the lie, the lie of the fairy tale that they have been telling the world 
the fairy tale of their inherent goodness, their inherent nobility, their inherent truthfulness. And really, the, the longing of the subjugation that God has created some people to rule and others to be subjected to their rule. And embrace the truth. Only, only if they do that do we have a possibility of having a world where all of the places that they have subjected in the history of the United Kingdom could actually see healing. Well, it, it, unfortunately, I, I wonder if you see, I don't see any signal that they're anywhere about to do that. Uh, well, right? Well, yes and no. <laughs> So, yes, I do. I think that, no, they probably are not going to do that anytime soon. But I do think, I think that Charles and the, and the person that he is and the reality that he, he has had looks, he's not been like his mother. Um, he also has had to wait his entire life to step onto this throne. And in the course of his younger life, he was extremely bullied. I mean, he was, he was bullied beyond the point where most of us could actually endure. And, and he has um, experienced uh, the leadership, been under the leadership of one of those who has been subjected by his own kingdom. When he went to Wales and learned Welsh in order to speak Welsh when he, when he um, took the crown, took uh, his, his designation. So there, there has been some preparation in his life for the possibility of dreaming another way. He himself has been subjected to the power of the crown. And I think he might actually have another way. And I think we do actually see small signals. I don't know what others would think, but I know that I get hope when I see the reality that just even today, he invited um, Harry to come and stand with William um, at the foot of his grandmother's coffin in his regimentals, not, not just in his um, other suiting. Or in his um, his casual um, attire, not casual, but you know what I mean, non-military attire. That is a break from tradition. That is a break from what the queen would have would have said she would have wanted. And so I see a break happening. I see the the invitation for Harry and Meghan to come and to to walk and to walk with William. Um, and the allowance of that, while we know that William is the one who invited Harry, for for uh, for the king to allow that is is something. It's indication that there is a desire to move in the direction, at least the direction of love, as opposed to the direction of domination. And we also th this there seems to be some reporting that Harry and Meghan's children will now be titled apparently. Uh, the law is, and, and all of this, I mean, to be honest, I'll be very frank, all this is really very stupid to me, but, uh, <laughs> and, and who determines what a prince or a princess is in the first place? Th this is hereditary. Um, but he will now be Prince Archie and she will be Princess Lilibet, which was her great grandmother's name growing up, uh, Queen Elizabeth's name as a child, her parents, King George, uh, and her mother, Queen Elizabeth called her um, a little bit, but, but before I, I, I get into some of, you know, the, the, the trying to demystify all of this, um, uh, 
your family story is fascinating, folks, and we invite you again to follow it in the book Fortune by Lisa Sharon Harper, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Um, talk to you, you mentioned the Barbados. So talk to us about your family history itself with the imposition of the crown. Yeah. So, you know, Ancestry.com DNA traces my family to have been landed and brought to the slave colony of Barbados somewhere around the time 1750. And what we know from the movement of our family's DNA through the islands as Ancestry.com has traced it is that within one generation, 25 years, our family had been sold into every island in the Lesser Antilles, every last one. So we know that they were used to bring money to the English people. We know that they were used not only on the island of Barbados, which was Britain's very first slave colony, but we know that they were used in all of them. So our family um, now, that, that line of the family made their way through all of those islands and now um, is actually solidly, mostly in the United States, although there's still a huge contingent still in Barbados and in other various islands. They came into the U.S. via um, Puerto Rico, where after abolition from the Dutch and English um, colonies, when abolition was declared, most of the Black Africans in that area made their way to Spanish colonies because Spanish colonies had a, you can say, you know, if everything's relative, a kinder relationship with people of African descent. Likely that's because many of the conquistadores were actually Africans um, were among the Spanish. So they, they welcomed people of African descent in a way that white colonies didn't. And they also didn't have uh, many of the same racial stratification that white British and read British colonies would have had. So my ancestors went from St. Kitts Nevis to Puerto Rico and eventually to the Bronx and, uh, and to Brooklyn, New York City. I, you talked about uh, how you wept, but now the, the place where your ancestors were first brought, Barbados, uh, broke away. Um, and removed the queen as head of state and de facto practically replaced the queen as head of state with Rihanna. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Charles went there for that. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. In fact, well, let me just say, it's rumored that, that Harry really had his eyes on Rihanna. Well, I don't know all that back. Yeah, that, that's, that's the rumor that's out there. That's, that's just a rumor, folks. I, that's some of the gossip. Because uh, he likes the sisters and um, that didn't work out. But but Charles went to, as someone who was ultimately going to become the head of the Commonwealth, went to Barbados for the handoff from his mother to Rihanna as queen of Barbados. And uh, how did you feel about that when, when that happened? Did that did that impact you? Did that strike a chord with you? Well, I have to say one of the things that um, that I. Uh, it still rocks me is to understand what slavery was like on the island of Barbados. That enslavement there was rough. I mean, you basically, the, the child, or around even the child, 
the life expectancy of someone enslaved on the island of Barbados at the time when my ancestors was there were brought there is that they would be brought there and within one year they would die. That the majority of people would die within one year. And that makes sense that they just kept populating it with new Africans because they were so close. Barbados is among the closest um, uh, areas in this hemisphere of the world to Africa. So they just had a steady flow like Brazil. Um, so it was brutal. The kind of enslavement that ours, our Caribbean ancestors experienced and my ancestors in Barbados was brutal. So when I saw Charles visit um, the island, and also when I saw William and Kate visit Jamaica, where is also another place where my ancestors were, and saw their reception there, I understood. I understood the protests. So I understand, actually, the whole Caribbean um, uprising now that's happening, demanding reparation. He realized that when the British left, they also saddled these, these islands with major amounts of debt, their own debt, and they made their debt price of the freedom. So they would not leave unless they could leave their debt as well. And that is just wrong. And on top of that, then, of course, they, they let people come into the UK and work. But they all they became second-class citizens in that society. So this impacts families. This impacts lives, futures, and possibilities for those families' futures. So it is only right and good. There is no other way to healing our world. There is not another way except through the way of telling the truth. And then making reparation and restitution for the things that were stolen, the lives and possibilities that were stolen. There's no other way for us to find healing. So when Charles went, that was what went through my mind. You mentioned, and, and your comments are very similar to those of uh, the attorney, Melissa Murray, the law professor, uh, who's frequently yeah. on MSNBC. She did a whole thread. There, there is. I think it's best to use Du Bois terminology, uh, the double consciousness, um, the two irreconcilable strivings between being African and being uh, in in his case, he was referring to America, but in anywhere in, in the European world view. What we are witnessing now is in not. um, It's intoxicating. It's it's all of this is part of the marketing to make to create this fairy fairy tale. Yes. Um, so that we get caught up in it and we want to watch it and we can't turn away from it. It's, it's wall-to-wall coverage as if there's no other news going on in the world. Uh, and it's romanticized. And and frankly, I think that Queen Elizabeth was critical in this because she was a woman. Um I, I fear that that probably um, uh, softened um, and anesthetized the horrors of the British Empire and the British crown during her reign. Um, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, at some point we have to break away from this pathology, this psychosis that this even met. She's the longest. We don't know who the longest serving queen is because we don't know how long uh, our queens and kings served in Africa. Many of us. So and, and if we go back to uh, uh, Kemet and ancient Egypt, we know some served longer than 70 years and had more impactful reigns. So when people run around talking about the white queen uh, serving longer than anyone else, 
that's not probably not historically uh, accurate. But do do you feel I, I know your emotions and Melissa Murray talked about that. But do you feel the need to uh, untether yourself and disconnect yourself from this romanticism? And and frankly, it's like um. The, the, you mentioned the stories. The, the story is built on that. There's this fairy tale, which really messes a lot of people up. A lot of folks still waiting in a castle for Prince Charming to come. Uh, and there's a shortage of Prince Charmings, Black Prince Charmings, because half of us are in prison. Uh, you know, so where is that going to come from? And I think it's also, don't you think, sobering, the timing of The Little Mermaid, another fairy tale. And because she's black, people have lost their minds. They have lost their minds, yeah. yeah. So, folks, we got we got to look at this fairy tale, and don't we need to figure out a way to pull away from it, Lisa? Yes. I, I, when you look at Camelot, um, Henry V, Shakespeare's um, Elizabethan flourish, right? Um, Victoria on on PBS, The Crown, all of these uh, stories focus in on, they, they narrow the focus of our view um, to the intimate lives of the royals. We only see their struggles. We only see their triumphs. And because they are the protagonists in the story, we root for them. Um, because they are the most fully human people in the world, because we get to see their every emotion, um, we root for them and we somehow see ourselves in them. But you see, that's the that's the genius, actually, of these um, British uh, UK stories is that they do narrow the purview and they get all all of us rooting for them. And that's part of how our subjugation happens in order for us to be set free. We actually have to understand that the jewels that are in those crowns are not only about um, how beautiful they make the crown of of the of the queen or the king the jewels are evidence of slaughter we do not see the conquered we only see the jewels that are scavenged from the lands of the conquered we do not see the shattered families the gutted resources the bloody brown and black bodies we see the prizes of war that are sitting atop the brows of uh, the king and queen we do not see the massacres and the concentration camps that have taken place in, on almost every continent in Australia, in Africa, on multiple places, especially I'm thinking of Kenya and South Africa. Um, we don't see the stolen children. What we see is the pomp and circumstance that in, actually in the, the show, The Crown, it was Margaret who said, the role, the role that the monarchy plays is to cover over the cracks. She said, what we do is we make it look like nothing is wrong. And that's our role. And the queen especially cannot glitch, cannot flinch, cannot let it be known that something is wrong behind the veil. Well, what they were talking about in the crown was just the dysfunction of England itself, of the empire itself. But we also understand that those that the wallpaper has hidden their dirty deeds. 
And I'm not saying, I am not one that necessarily, like that says we necessarily have to do away with the monarchy. I don't think it's my place as someone who's not um, from, from the UK to, to demand what their government should do. But what I do say is if they are to be a part of the healing of the world, which they say they want, then it is not possible for them to continue with the stories. They have to bow to the truth. I, I think, though, with what's going on with the Caribbean nations, uh, what's going on in, in other nations, all of the places that that her government colonized, all places of color, including Australia, they're even considering removing her uh, as head of state. The Jamaicans say, say to me when they're on this show, how do we raise little Jamaican girls yeah. to aspire to leadership and greatness when all the currency and money they exchange has a white woman on it? Um, right. So uh, that's important. But it seems to me that if there, there ever was an hour politically for a move to be made to abolish the monarchy. Now, right now, as we speak, folks, people are being arrested. Protesters are being arrested in the streets of London for protesting uh, uh, and demanding the abolition of the monarchy. Um, the accession, yeah, the accession council um, that appointed Charles just once again showed this is not a, a democratic type of thing. Um, if there was ever an opportunity, and 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 Lord knows, I mean, even amongst white Britons, they aren't in love with Charles and Camilla. Um, they, they feel Charles and Camilla killed the, the one, um, that they wanted to be queen. The public did, um, the, the, the one they call the people's princess, princess Diana. So if there ever was an opportunity and, and I don't know, at least I don't know that it, th th this opportunity shouldn't be seen. Cause here's the other thing that's intoxicated. As Martin Thatcher said, this papers over the truth. This here really does not have any power. They, they have very limited power and authority. It's, it's symbolic and it, and it, it plays, it, it, it is an intoxicant. And, and somehow in this capitalist system, we still, it, it's as if those of us in the, all these people walking through the land to go see her, don't have a dime. None of these people got a dime. <laughs> Look at all these people walking through, y'all broke as I don't know what, doing bad. Inflation ain't just in America, it's all over the world. But they lined up to see a woman worth over a billion dollars laid out uh not getting credit they know how to lay folk out now they they i never seen a jaguar hearse before um uh, <laughs> right right okay, so they, they but look at all look at the opulence in that people are poor homeless people are being snatched up off the streets so they aren't visible monday during the funeral all right but how much of that how much that jaguar hearse specially made to lay her out in. Okay. This was a hearse that was specially made for her death. So she couldn't even enjoy it. While she, I never heard of somebody having something made that they can't even see when they're gone, unless they're looking at from glory. It, it, but it seems to me that if there ever was an opportunity to call for an abolition of the monarchy, one of the last monarchies of relevance in Europe, because World War I and World War II knocked most of the other monarchies out so 
Britain has this monopoly on, on monarchy and queendom and fantasy and Cinderella and Rapunzel and Sleeping Beauty. All of these fantasies that continue um, to numb us to the realities of, of justice and reparations and, and what we demand. I, I, I think this is an opportunity for not only all of these nations to pull away. It is. But also, but also uh, for those in Britain, these, so let me tell you something. Let me tell you one other thing. You saw the poor people in that line, y'all? Their taxes are paying for all this too. This ain't even free. So it's not even like her million dollar fortune is financing this. The taxpayers are paying. So you are, it's like your tax is going toward uh, the Cinderella movie. <laughs> You're making the case. You're making the case for the dissolution of the, of the monarchy. And I say it's a very good case. It's a great case. I, I, will, I just want to add that it's not only people of color actually all over the world, though, of course, we, we have been, most we've been brutalized the most recently, right? But when right. you go all the way back to the people of Scotland and Wales and Ireland, and yeah. that goes back to the 15 and 1600s. And, and, on a, and the story of fortune actually travels through that story. So I learned about the, the plantation um, era, um, believe it or not, that's what they call it, the plantation era in Northern Ireland around the early 1600s. And that's when they, they had already um, taken hold of, of Scotland and they then inscripted Scottish people to go into Ireland and claim their lands and uh, especially Northern Ireland around Belfast and plant plantations there and be the ones who actually um, then were the overseers of that land. Yes, they did. The Scots did. And, it, and that intersects with my family because uh, Maudlin McGee, who is Fortune's mother, a woman from Belfast, and was married to George McKee, and they were Scots in Northern Ireland around that time in the 1680s. And they came to America after a huge uprising of the Irish there. So I've heard, you know, with peers to the ground, that the Scots are saying it's time to, to leave the Commonwealth. It's the Irish saying it for a long time. The Welsh have been saying it for a long time. So it's, I think that what, what England and Britain must do is it must ask the question, how is it possible for them to find strength in their own two feet, but also coming to the table with other nations as equals, as collaborators, not peace through domination, but rather peace through collaboration. And that, that would be a major shift. And the monarchy is the symbol of domination. Because those jewels that come in that crown come, came through domination. You yeah. think that the British, like when you say Britain, you're talking about, um, you're talking about Britain, you're talking about Wales, you're talking about Ireland, and you're talking about Scotland, Northern Ireland, you're talking about Scotland. Um, that's through force itself. So what does it look like for England, you know, to stand on its own and actually allow others to have self-determination and then to deal with that? Um, that's how we get to health and wellness. And it's going to take losing power, power that is a false power, power that is only through the wallpaper over the cracks. Yeah. Um, it, we should also acknowledge this. The, the Commonwealth itself is, 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 a, is another thing. And most of the Commonwealth nations are nations of color. 
including Jamaica, including some of the African nations. And so I even saw the, the marriage. People were like, well, they didn't Harry marry black woman. I didn't think that was so much of, of anything but a political stroke as well. Meghan Markle's wedding dress had within it uh, the, the flowers, uh, 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 the stitching of the flowers, the national flower of each Commonwealth nation. Now, why is that? Why is that in your wedding dress? The, the symbolism of here a woman of color joining the royal family was probably meant to serve, and I'm sure, and Charles had a lot to do, he orchestrated all of it, was meant to serve as some uh, signal um, to, to suggest some affinity um, from the royal family toward these Commonwealth nations as they all are discussing getting out, getting hacked. Uh, so I, that's not that's not lost on me either. Uh, uh, um, you know what that was all about. And now look, now it's as if nothing ever happened. They're being brought back uh, into the fold, so to speak. That's what it looks like. And so um, we will see how all of this uh, um, uh, ends up and pans out. But as I said, folks, all these people you see, well, I just want y'all to understand that. This and the Jamaicans told me this. You know, when they go, when they impose themselves in these countries, they go to the Caribbean to visit. The Caribbean nation and their taxpayers have to pay, Lisa, for the security and expenses of those royal visits. Yeah. That means pay for that. So it's like it's some kind of honor <laughs> to receive and pay for them people to come see you when they should be paying reparations. They need to be paying us. That's right. That's right. There's a there's a supreme irony, and and that's the, that's the power of the story. The story of the fairy tale, bringing a fairy tale to your island, they believe should actually um, be worth something. But the reality is, they just have never done right. No, They've never done right, and they shouldn't even they shouldn't even be there. They should not be there. Uh, yeah, and I think that the people, the greatest thing that I see right now, the shift that I see happening, is that I see that the people. That those who have been named subjects standing up and saying, I was not born to be subjected. That's right. That's right. I was not created to be subjected to you. You were not born to rule over me. And so what, what we're really talking about, what reparations really is, is making the relationship right. It's bringing it right. Right. Rightness. Um, and what that would look like is uh, standing in a circle. Mm. Humanity and deciding how we will do this together. Yeah, yeah. Lisa Sharon Harper, folks, don't forget to check out her latest book. Uh, it's a compelling story, her family history, and it should inspire us all to dig deeper into our family histories. Fortune, how race broke my family and the world, and how to repair it all. Lisa, we thank you for joining us. Good to see you. Thank you. So good to see you too. Thanks for reaching out to me this morning. Let's 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 stay in close touch. Okay, we'll do this again. We'll do. All right. Take care now. Uh, Lisa Sharon Harper here with us. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to eleven grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. 
Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. Joining us now is our dear brother. Um, we appreciate uh, all that he does, a longtime comrade and uh, an activist. And he is, um, has been uh, one of the leaders in really trying to shed real light on what's been happening in not only Cuba, but Zimbabwe, in fact, part of an organization um, that, um, that is the Zimbabwe, the Cuba and Zimbabwe friendship organization. He's a playwright, he's an educator, he's a father, uh, and he has um, been a very direct connection um, between our current struggle and the ongoing struggle of of our people around the world in the diaspora, Brother Obeg Buna Jr. Joy, and again, his father, a very famous author himself from Nigeria. Obi, how are you, brother? I'm fine, brother. Good to be on with you. Good to have you on, man. And uh, you know, Obi and I don't get a chance to talk enough. And we, he, he was, uh, he hit me up the other day. And I said, "Wait a minute, man." Let's stop procrastinating on this. Let me just have you on the show because this is good content as the whole world is r romanticizing and um, hagiographizing the British crown um, and living in this fairy tale. We do well to take a serious look at, at just how much of a fairy tale this is not. Right, Obi? Definitely, definitely not. Um, definitely not, no. So, uh, it, 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 but let me just say this, just kind of set this up, folks. So we, we looking at this. This is what most of us don't know. This year, 2022, is the 50th anniversary of Osage, Dr. Osage for Kwame Nkrumah's transition. All right. See, 50 years from now, we, they're going to be showing this. They need, we need, need to be showing Nkrumah today. It is also the 100th anniversary of the birth of the centennial of Ahmed Sekou Toure. And so, so Obi, give us some, some context here why uh, our history, our black royalty should be amplified rather than just this queen. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, it's always an honor to be on with you. And we thank you for your consistency and our struggle as, um, Brother Kwame Ture, toward our generation, we need more war horses, not racehorses. So you've been on the trail for a long time, so it's always an honor to be with you. Um, it comes down to where we fall on the spectrum, um, mm -hmm. brother. If you're Jay-Z, if you're Beyonce, if you're Oprah Winfrey, if you're the Obamas, you're, you're crying a river, as Sam Cooke used to say. But if you're those children of Africa, who've embraced your historical responsibility to fight to reclaim what is ours, then this is just a day in the life. Um, so this is cultural warfare, this finest. And since you mentioned Akme Sekou Toure, we thank you for that. Let's use his definition of culture. He said that culture is the sum total of spiritual and material values obtained by humanity throughout its history. And Osajipo, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, always talking to us about the process of decolonization, what that means is waging this war on a daily basis. And if this is a situation where we are focusing on what we embrace, what we reject, 
what we celebrate, what we do not celebrate, this is how we come to look at it. Looking at this through the eyes of an African, one who knows on the struggle in Africa, knows that in 1957, Osage for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah and the Convention People's Party, through a positive action campaign, what we call nonviolence in North American borders, they took power from, from the British colonialists. That same year, Queen Elizabeth II takes control of the King's African Rifles. Many may not know what the King's African Rifles are. The King's African Rifles was a military process where indigenous people of any nation that the British colonized, they would assemble some of the people who are indigenous to that land and train them militarily to fight against the resistance where armed struggle was the case. One of the most celebrated armed struggles in the history of modern Africa is the struggle in Kenya, led by the Land and Freedom Army, commonly and affectionately referred to as the Mau Mau. The King's African Rifles were Kenyans who fought against the Mau Mau on the battlefield. One of the most controversial um, heads of state in modern African history is Idi Amin. Even though Idi Amin was known for telling the queen to take her glove off when she shook his hand because he too is royalty, Idi Amin was a member of the King's African Rifles. As a matter of fact, when the president of Uganda, Milton Obote, he was propositioned by the United States and he was propositioned by the Kenyan government to start a program to train, to train trade unionists in his country. And they found out that their program was connected to the International Labor Solidarity Center, which is now autonomous of the AFL-CIO, but was the global component of it, which we found out later on in life was affiliated with the CIA. Obote terminates that program. The CIA and British intelligence help help Idi Amin overthrow Obote. So we're going to discuss this. We have to discuss the King's African Rifles. As you know, I have the honor of being the first U.S. correspondent in, of Zimbabwe's national newspaper in the country's 42-year history. Part of, rep, part of focusing on his queen is focusing on Cecil John Rhodes and the British South African Company. We're talking about a culture beyond a figure, beyond an image, a culture, a way of life. And as we know, they're ter terrorizing our continent, raping our continent, plundering our continent, conquering land and stripping us of our human and material resources. This is not policy related. This is not law related. It represents their culture. So as long as they embrace that culture, our culture of resistance will push us through. And the queen was the band-aid to divert attention away from those atrocities. So as we celebrate Nkrumah's transition this year, we also know that on February 24th, 1966, at the same exact time that Dr. Martin Luther King and the most honorable Elijah Muhammad had their first, their meeting of the minds at the palace in Chicago, the Nkrumah was overthrown en route to Vietnam to present a proposal to end the Vietnam War. So we, Muhammad Ali just wasn't stripped of his belt. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was not under a more intense radar being the first organization, but Nkrumah comes out against the Vietnam War. So these things are very important to talk about, and we cannot let these events divert attention away from not only how Britain ushers in settler colonialism, anytime we talk about the Queen, we have to talk about the birth of Zionism. Because you cannot talk about Zionism and not talk about the Balfour Declaration. In 1914, Lord Arthur Balfour sets the diplomatic wheels in motion for, in 1948, Israel to be born. 
So if we're going to focus on the logistical work that Ralph Bunch did, looking at it through African eyes, if we're going to focus on the fact that Harry Belafonte used to sing a song the same way Ray Charles sang America the Beautiful, he used to sing a song called Haba Nagila. And that song was celebrating the Balfour Declaration. And Mr. Belafonte brags that he did more to popularize that song in U.S. borders than any other artist. So you cannot talk about Britain and not talk about Zionism. You cannot talk about the Queen and not talk about colonialism, especially the violent expressions of colonialism in places where we had to take up arms. And even if you're looking at the world globally and you're not looking at Africans, the people of Malay took a, fought for 12 years against the king's African rifles. And for those of you who have accepted the amputated narrative of the African experience and you only deal with North America, the king's African rifles are the complement of the Buffalo soldiers. What do we know, Obi? Because I think there's probably a lot of revisionist history on this subject. The queen going to Ghana and dancing with President Nkrumah. What, what do you know about that? She, oh, she, she went there because what was happening was they were just trying to test the waters with him. He first showed up um, in an FBI document when he started the African Student Union before he came to Britain. And they already knew where his heart was because, of course, this, we, we have to go back to understand that trip, uh, my brother. You have to look at the Fifth Pan-African Congress in Manchester, England, in her backyard arguably the most important meat assembling of Africans in the 20th century, where a young Nkrumah was an organizer of that event. A young George Padmore was an organizer of that event. Nandi Ezekwe was there. Paul Robeson and his wife, Eslanda um, Robeson, were there. It was Du Bois' swan song. It was his last Pan-African assembling of that magnitude, him being involved in every one of them from 1900 to 1945. So they were trying to check Nkrumah's temperature. And so when they watched the positive action campaign in 1957 in Ghana and him saying that this isn't um, this is all it's meaningless unless all of Africa is free. Then you look at the fact that from 1957 to 1960, 35 nations get their independence, the most rapid swing towards peace and progress in modern history, even though President Obama told you that Arab Spring was he's wrong there. But he's not a his, but he's not a history teacher. He's a lawyer by trade. So blemishes on the law on history he he can be pardoned for that but anyway so they thought by coming there they could manipulate Nkrumah into relaxing because this is right around the time that it's abundantly clear that he's using Ghana to give the other liberation movement still in pursuit of liberation whether they are fighting a whether they're organizing a positive action campaign or organizing an armed struggle because at in one year after Ghana was a nation in 1958, you have the All African People's Conference, where Patrice Lumumba shows up in Ghana, France Fanon shows up in Ghana, and the question is raised, all anti-colonial movements, whether they're fighting through positive action or through armed struggle, should be supported. And when you get the book Class Struggle in Africa, he chronicles all the liberation movements who have offices and operations in Ghana. And this is in conjunction with the strategy that he put in place to set up a repatriate community of organizers. So this is how Julian Mayfield comes to Ghana. Maya Angelou comes to Ghana. Tom Feelings comes to Ghana. W. Alpheus Hinton comes to Ghana. And that was the idea of Shirley Graham Du Bois. 
So the queen's trip to Ghana was set to counter that. But she also made, brother, 19 other trips. She visited the African continent 20 times. And she um, had interaction with many of the key U.S. presidents. So if you look at U.S. history in relationship to the queen, and then we look at Britain's Africa policy, which we don't look at enough. At the, at the moment, a country that you and I both love, Eritrea, just took out the sanctions lifted on them two years ago. The sanctions on them were imposed because the British government put out a lie on them that they were harboring terrorists from Al-Shabaab. And this is at the same time that Eritrea is the only country in Africa at the moment to have free education and free health care of our people. And right now, the Biden administration is pushing for regime change in Eritrea. So these are things that we have to watch very closely. And the fact that even though President Mugabe was knighted by the queen way back in 1994, that was a test because she knew that Britain had failed to honor the Lancaster House agreement, that between 1980 and 1990, Britain and the U.S. would put up $5 billion. So the white um, commercial farmers, the Caucasian colonial farmers of British and Rhodesian ancestry could relocate. They would no longer have the farm the size of half of Harare or half of Kwekwe or half of Kagodoma or half of Mondora and Gezi and the 10 provinces in Africa. But since Britain eventually reneged, Thatcher made some overtures in the beginning. John Major made some overtures. But the Bill Clinton wannabe Tony Blair, when he comes on the scene, he says he's going for regime change in Zimbabwe. And we now know that he was having high-level conversations with his chief military advisor, Guthrie, to overthrow the Zimbabwean government. So these are the things that the queen has always been used to um, cover up. So anytime she sets foot out of um, Britain to set foot anywhere in Africa, it is to divert attention not only from the atrocities of settler colonialism, but neocolonialism. And since we've been under neocolonialism for, for, three, for three decades now, whether you want to look at Mobutu's reign of terror in the Congo, Hufet Boini's reign of terror in Cote d'Ivoire, Bukasa's reign of terror, of terror in the Central African Republic, British colonial culture has played a very central role in that process. And we should not allow her death to divert attention away from any of us. Speaking of neocolonialism, Brother Obi, as we know, many of the, the nations who, the black nations that got their independence, the African nations, the Caribbean nations, um, they became a part of this commonwealth. It isn't the commonwealth itself an instrument of neocolonialism? You, the best example is when Zimbabwe reclaimed their land in 2000. They suspended Zimbabwe from the commonwealth and Zimbabwe eventually withdrew. So powerful is this commonwealth. Thank you for bringing up the Caribbean, Brother Matsumela. Um, you're very sharp geographically. Is it Cuba in the Caribbean? Yes, sir. How, how does Cuba have observer status at, um, in Caracom? They're, they're in the Caribbean. To say that Cuba is not part of the Caribbean is like the colonialist narrative of Africa that says that Egypt and Algeria and Morocco and Libya and, part of, and all of North Africa really isn't part of Africa. It's just a technicality in terms of geography. But because of British pressure, this was Britain's way of showing support for U.S. imperialist policy on Cuba. They have intimidated those countries into not allowing 
Cuba to have permanent status, which is inextricably linked to the fight right now, Brother Matsumela and listeners and, and watchers and viewers, if you don't know this, there's a growing tide saying that Israel should not have observer status in the African Union, which they have. And that is necessary to raise. But guess what? Of the 55 nations in Africa, Israel has embassies in 47 of them right now. So this is an extension of Britain's manipulation, Britain's influence, their diplomatic influence, their political influence. What does the United States have to do with Zimbabwe? Why is the United States imposing sanctions on Zimbabwe? As everyone in Africa has said, the Zimbabwe dispute is a dispute between an independent cyber nation and their former colonizer, a bilateral dispute. So that's between ZANU-PF and the Labour Party of Britain and the Conservative Party of Britain and the M16, the intelligence agencies, the BBC, and every apparatus at the disposal of British colonialism that wants to make neocolonialism and force neocolonialist policies on Zimbabwe. They created an organization in 1999 called the Movement for Democratic Change, which was financed by the Westminster Fund for Democracy, which is nothing but the British and U.S. government. And this is part and parcel of Britain and the United States and the European Union, bringing this to people who focus on the ballot. They've been telling us in Africa, Brother Matsumela, for the last 30 years that the one-party state is undemocratic. I'm Nigerian. So if Igbos and Yoruba and Houses are all in one party because they see themselves as African first, that's not democratic. But for you to be able to take parties that you created outside of Africa, give them life on the ground in Africa, who only exist for regime change, if we allow them to function on the ground, that's how we're supposed to show we're democratic. Lastly, on this point, they've been telling us that we are politically backward. We are politically um, primitive. So the National Endowment for Democracy, the not National Democratic Institute, and the International Republican Institute, Brother Matsumela and listeners, was created in 1983 in the Queen's backyard after Ronald Reagan gave a speech to the European Union Parliament saying, think tanks like this must prevail in order for us to win the Cold War. So they've been monitoring elections in Africa since 1983, saying they're trying to make us more democratic. How many women presidents do we have? have we had? Ethiopia's got a woman president right now. Malawi had a woman president. Of course, Ellen Johnson Salif in Liberia was president. We've had um, a, a lot of women prime ministers. What is called South Africa even had a woman president for 24 hours. How many women presidents has the United States had? Colombia has now their first woman, African woman vice president. Cuba has two African women vice presidents right now. So the British colonial spin on democracy, the United States imperialist spin on democracy, it gets Beethoven ears in Africa because we are more politically advanced than you because the Sheikh Anta Diop said we're a metrilineal people and women have just as much of a right to be neocolonialists as men do in the Africa that I'm watching today. I'm not saying we embrace these women, but it verifies the fact that our people are politically mature enough, culturally tolerant enough 
to let a woman be at the helm, the same way we let women queens. And lastly on this, what their biggest fear is, since we're talking about the Osage folk, King said that capitalism finds its ancestral roots in feudalism. Social, um, communalism finds its, socialism finds its ancestral roots in feudalism. So we want to move off the European kings and queens. We got to go back and look at why are we still celebrating our kings and queens. Our fight against feudalism is the reason that created the climate and atmosphere for settler colonialism to prevail. Settler colonialism interrupted the class struggle. Mansa Musa had $400 billion in his pocket. That belonged to all of Mali. Are we teaching our children to look at Mansa Musa as a hero or Modibo Keita, the socialist revolutionary? And I can say this to so-called U.S.-born Africans because a lot of you, your first exposure to Africa was through great kings and queens of Africa, through Ebony Magazine, which Amaza Bush financed, but the great John Henry Clark did those historical layouts. And the reason that that existed is because we fought, because we were saying, you're not starting our history in Jamestown in chains, as your property, as your chattel. So the compromise was, we could talk about Africa 80 million years ago, propagating the notion that Africa is part of our glorious past, but not our present and not our future. But we're going to go with the last line of lift every voice and sing. We're going to be true to our God and true to our native land. And our native land ain't Texas. It's not Missouri. It's not Cuba. It's not Bolivia. It's not Jamaica. But at the same time, as true daughter sons of Africa, all 55 nations in Africa must embrace the 45 million Africans in the United States the Africans that have been in Australia for 80,000 years, the 200 million Africans in India, the 100 million Africans in Pakistan, the 100 million Africans in Brazil. So the amputated narrative of the African experience is out. And for those of you who have too much plantation love, our response is no more plantation love. Um, last, as we go, brother, I want to lift up. Folks, check out the latest thread by Michael Harriet of the Griot where he talks about the news that came out a few days ago that Aretha Franklin was surveilled herself by COINTELPRO. And one of the, it, there's an indirect relationship because of the queen. Um, it, one of the principles of COINTELPRO, one of its, its mission statements, number one, we know, number two, we know famously prevent the rise of a black messiah, et cetera. Um, number one, and in the preventing of that rise, they mentioned three people. Martin Luther King Jr., Elijah Muhammad, and the then Stokely Carmichael, who went on to become Kwame Ture, who was a mentor to both Obi and me. But here's paragraph number one. Prevent the coalition of militant black nationalist groups. In unity, there is strength, a truism that is, less, is no less valid for all its triteness. An effective coalition of black nationalist groups might be the first step toward a real Mau Mau. That's what Jagger Hoover wrote. A real Mau Mau in America the beginning of a true uh, black revolution. And um, in this thread, he, he quotes Dr. King's uh, statements. Um, the masses of people uh, are rising up, Dr. King said, and wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Jackson, or Memphis, the cry is always the same. We want to be free. Dr. King was speaking out on um, us coming uh, together. Medgar Evers, um, when he lived in Mountain Bayou, Mississippi, you should see this thread, and Michael Harriet on Twitter, 
he started there the formation of a Mau Mau group based on the other Mau Maus in Kenya. This was going on in Mound Bayou, Mississippi. Um, and lastly, one of the reasons that Aretha Franklin was, uh, was under surveillance, her father was helping to finance these movements. There were African leaders coming to Detroit to meet with um, the Reverend C.O. Franklin. And so this, this was the power of this movement. Um, there was some Pan-African unity coming together. And, and what, so what we're witnessing now is the counter to that. And we have to be very, very careful. We don't get caught up in the romanticism and the fairy tale uh, and the distraction. Obi, I got to go. Final thoughts. Um, well, the final thoughts, I'm glad you brought that up because a few years ago, through the Mass Emphasis Children's History and Theater Company, we had some children do a mini documentary saying that our actors and actresses should not play police officers, should not play military officers, and should not play intelligence agents until the policy changes. And um, I think that that's very important. But as far as the FBI goes, they're watching us, we're watching them. And what is, what is proven when we look more into their history, the world isn't big enough for the both of us. So every installation that represents counterintelligence in the world that imperialism maintains, it has to go. But what we have to be very careful of is we must pay attention not only to COINTELPRO, Matsumela, but COINTELPRO, the United States Agency for International Development, created in 1961 in conjunction with the Peace Corps. And I'm going to bring... And when we talk about the Peace Corps, to say that the peace, to compare the Peace Corps and the um, CIA, or to say they're different, that's like saying the White Citizens Council and the Ku Klux Klan are different. And interestingly enough, bringing Guinea into this as we go, um, John F. Kennedy sent um, Harry Belafonte as an emissary of the U.S. Peace Corps to go meet with Akme Sekouture. And as a result of that conversation, Guinean dancers and drummers started coming to the United States. That's why African dancing and drumming is so popular all over North America, because the Guinean revolution was the first revolution to tell their story to the world in ballet. And that's why we did the play that we did this year, Ready for the Revolution, celebrating Akme Sekoutoure and Abale Kamara. So we can talk about the atrocities of the FBI, the CIA, the police. But we must not let them police us anywhere in the world, number one. But number two, every time we protest the atrocities, they reinvent themselves and recruit our people into their ranks. These STEM programs that are all over the public schools, if you look at who controls the STEM industry, it's the military, it's the police, and it's the intelligence community of North America. So our children are going to be working for them. And if they're entrepreneurs, they're going to be having contracts with them. So that if we're saying smash them and defeat them, we must break ties with them all together. Thank you, Madam Samir. Thank you so much, uh, Brother Obi. Good to see you as always. Folks, again, from that Michael Harriet thread, August 16th, 1968, Memphis, Tennessee, the Reverend C.O. Franklin, Aretha Franklin's father, was quoted as saying, England has degenerated from a first to a third rate power. Even then, uh, England was being called out for, um, for her contradictions. Joining us now from the Advocate Network from Jamaica, Professor Rosalie Hamilton. Dr. Hamilton, sorry to keep you waiting. How are you today? I am doing very well. Wonderful, wonderful. So 
what's the latest? Last time we talked, y'all, and you all have been talking about this for a while, removing the queen as head of state. Uh, I don't see, I, I mean, you all haven't done it yet, but I ain't got y'all uh, letting Charles be on your money and your stamps. Uh, uh, when y'all going to do something? <laughs> well, 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 one man can only say that the death of the queen is now escalating the energy and the commitment and the fervor to put an end to this old colonial anachronism. I mean, it's time. We've already um, expressed our um, impatience earlier this year when the um, royal visit, during the royal, royal visit of William and Kate. And this death has really just um, given more energy and more life. So we will be pushing. Um, the period of mourning ends uh, next week. And so you will see shortly after our efforts beginning to escalate and we will hold our prime minister responsible with respect to his words and his commitment to move on. So we expect that he will act on those words and they're not just empty words. I so we'll continue to demand the timetable, the process, you know, the, the minister in responsibility said she's going to put a constitutional committee in place. We've not heard anything about that committee. So, you know, we will be pushing. What about uh, Jamaicans who are watching this? Um, we've talked to some already. We hear that guest on early and people, people are having mixed emotions, it seems. Uh, understandably so. I'm not knocking that. But what are your thoughts about that? I mean, some people still feel some sentimentality, some fairy taleism to this. Uh, what's your counsel to people who are kind of struggling with that and, and you know, wondering what's what's how why'd I feel this way? Should I feel this way? What do you say to those people? Well, first of all, I'd say I understand the feeling and to say um, we let's begin to look at why. Many of us grew up, and I think this is much more so for the older generation, my parents' generation. They grew up with a very benign, positive image, fairy tale image of a queen who took care of us, you know, at that time. And um, remember, we were still a colony. And so, you know, there was a sense in which you felt you were British and you felt this was your queen. And there was a there was a, a really deep emotional connection. In fact, if you listen to the early pioneers who went to England and fought the war, but also um, um, went to England with respect to the, the Windrush generation, you'll hear them talking very fondly of that early experience. Now, of course, once they got to England and they experienced firsthand racism, that was a wake-up call. And so attitudes changed. But for those of us who are still in the Jamaica, especially from that generation, it's a, it's a, it's a real emotion. And I, I want to add, um, we've all lost, many of us anyway, have lost our mom, our grandparents, and so on. So we certainly respect the loss of our life. Um, and I, I think, however, we should separate the emotion we may have for an individual and to look at the institution that individual represents. And I think in that way, the both emotions can play out. An uh, emotional and uh, more, more importantly, a very practical activist reaction to 
a definitive move to ending the legacy of that institution, the imperial relationship we continue to have today. And I think it, it both can co- coincide, and they do. I've met individuals who feel uh, a mourning, a loss of a life, and an emotional connection they have as a result. But they also understand the urgency to end this monarchical arrangement. And, and you know, there's also this issue of, of reparations. Uh, so, and we know some nations like Barbados have removed the, the, the monarchy as head of state. But reparations, that's an even bigger issue and a bigger ask. Give us an update on where that process is and, and the movement around reparations in Jamaica and the thinking. Okay, so the, across the Caribbean, there are a couple of countries, including Jamaica, that have established a reparations committee. And so the lead center of activities, the work is doing, is being done largely through those committees in a very organized and structured manner led by the CARICOM uh, Secretariat. Now, we, through our advocacy, um, provide support and we support their work. And that work continues with deeper engagement with civil society, citizens in our country, so that we can better understand what exactly is on the table. So there's that discussion and this um, debate that has happened, that is necessary, and that is in fact taking place among citizens in the respective countries. So we lend support to that effort. But our focus in Jamaica through the Advocates Network is essentially on this move to become a republic. And we feel very strongly that separating ourselves from the institution of the monarchy, removing the monarch as head of state, is one very important step but it is not the only or even the most important step. The, the, the key set of activities is linked to how we remove the institutional legacies of the colonial process and, and, and on all the processes that went with that, that are embedded in our educational institutions, in our legal structure, for example, our final court of appeal is still in England, the Privy Council. It is embedded in our health. We, we, we continue to suffer, um, you know, chronic diseases and so on as a result of the poor intergenerational diet that we've had and a range of other institutional legacies that we have to rule out. And what requires a governance arrangement, a business-generated process, it's the voice of the Jamaican people can be heard. And so we're engaging actively in constitutional conversations, pushing for the strengthening of other legal and policy arrangements that can strengthen the voice of people, and ultimately pushing for a society in which the Jamaican people are, more, are, are sovereign and not the one Now, to break that down for us again, a couple of areas you mentioned. The, the, the Privy Council, um, which folks now... We saw these so this cast of characters during the accession accession ceremony of King Charles. So I want to be sure I understand this correctly. This Privy Council um, still holds some sway over power and decision making in Jamaica. It's not just some say; it's our final court of appeal. 
as the final place Jamaicans get justice. I mean, let's turn back a little. We're, all of this is rooted to a time when um, people in England went to the kings and queens at the time for justice. And that was the era of absolute rule by the monarchy when the views and opinions and whims of the monarch could be could lead to the loss of your life. You know, um, I don't like you to go to Dallas, kind of, you know, that kind of rule. And so over time, Britain itself moved away from the Privy Council to establish their own um, House of Lords and, and, and different arrangement, separated, um, separate from, from the monarchical arrangement for their final justice. That's kind of how absurd this arrangement is. So that there are a few countries like Jamaica who today, um, the final appeals is external to our country. It's an external jurisdiction. It's um, a place where you have to have a visa. And if you can't find the financial resources to go on a plane, hire a lawyer, and um, defend your case, then you can't get justice. Not at the final level of our judicial system. One other thing you mentioned that always intrigues people, I was saying it earlier before you came on, when William and Kate came to see, to, to Jamaica to see you all recently, to see the country, to tour, um, I think you were telling me before, you, the taxpayers had to pay for some of that, right? And the taxpayers had to pay for security and, and other things, right? That's, and they weren't, and the taxpayers, the Jamaicans didn't invite them to come. Absolutely, did not invite them. Absolutely so. And so the same is true for the king. The king can choose to come when he wants. And importantly, it's one thing if you come as a visitor, you know, we welcome all visitors and tourists to Jamaica. But when you come and you expect, that the business of the people of Jamaica gets shifted to the side when our, the highest levels of our government now has to find time to meet and engage and to do whatever they want done at any moment in time. We, part of the outrage that many of us felt was that the royals came during a COVID pandemic a time when our children were not able to go to school, massive learning losses, a time when, you know, um, we were also struggling with the weakness of our health system and a range of other businesses are closing but still are unable to open. And they walk into our country and expect us to be dutiful subjects and to um, respond to their wins and fancies. No, no, no. That's not acceptable in the modern world. If we, um, we feel that we are as equal as they are, um, we, we struggle and fight for a world in which basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all. And where there's no first class and second class citizens. And we, we in the words of, of, of Hill Selassie and Bob Marley and others, where that philosophy that holds one race superior and another inferior can be permanently and finally discredited and abandoned. That's what we're working towards. 
And again, as you alluded to, if there was ever an opportunity um, to do this, it's now. Um, let's face it, King Charles is hobbled. Some people are seizing this opportunity, even in Britain, to talk about the abolition of the monarchy. Um, I think, you know, while some may have embraced the queen, uh, even as an elderly woman, um, Charles and Camilla uh, are not his beloved, probably never will be. Um, so if there ever was an opportunity uh, to make these types of moves, now is the time. Professor Rosalie Hamilton of the Advocates Network in Jamaica, we've been staying in close touch. I'm, I um, am, am happy about that and, and want to stay in touch and be as supportive as I can and inform the public and do more, um, if possible and necessary, behind the scenes to support uh, the movement that's happening in Jamaica. There was another, uh, they were interviewing someone on television the other day from Jamaica that said, what you said when you were last here with me, so you're, you're being quoted a lot. Um, how do we inspire little Jamaican girls to be all that they can be when the image on their money and on their poster stamps is a, is a white woman. Um, it's 2022, y'all. Um, and we know some of you love the queen and the monarchy. Well, knock yourself out. Um, but they don't have, they're not going to put Meghan Markle on the money. And there's a reason for that. So if it was all about that, they just go ahead and put Meghan Markle on the money too and everybody it would just be like that. No. So now they're going to put Charles on the money. And I just don't, it, it, to me, in, in 2022, it just seems ridiculous that we're still doing that type of Thing. Shoot in America, sitting presidents out on the money. Um, so this is this is what must happen. Uh, Professor Hamilton, always a pleasure to speak with you, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for doing what you're doing because this opportunity to share information is an important part of our advocacy. When people understand this history, understand why the need to move is now, I think it will help us, and we get to our destination very soon. Thank you so much. Looking forward to hearing more from you. Take care now. Good. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Um... So, folks, um, great conversations with everyone who joined us today. Just wanted to do this ahead of the, the funeral Monday. Uh, sovereignty, reparations for our Caribbean nations and, and all of our nations throughout the world. That is what, of course, uh, uh, must be sought, what, of course, uh, is necessary uh, in this day and time. Uh, in this hour and hopefully um, that will take place that must be that um, must be our resolve ladies and gentlemen it must be uh, our resolve as we see more of the mourners gather again people who are paying for this People who are um, not even aware of, of what they're financing and what they're, what they're paying for, for wealthy people. Yeah. Somebody's going to wake up. 
somebody's gonna wake up real soon. I, I am, I'm, 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 we can pretty much guarantee that. We thank you all uh, for joining us. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.